Church Uncharted is a podcast about following Jesus and making new followers of Jesus in the uncharted waters of today. Your host, Matt Schubert, is a mission facilitator and church planter in the Rockingham Mandra region of Western Australia. He knows that the call to follow Jesus can look different in an ever-changing culture, and when it comes to evangelism, there's no perfect formula. So he'll be joined by guests who'll help us, the church, navigate these exciting unknowns. I think Christians, I'd like to see Christians be a bit bolder about embracing their weirdness yeah. and not being so concerned about trying to be cool, hip and so-called relevant. Mm. I think that's a big mistake because if you chase relevance, mm. that's a treadmill you'll never get off. Mm. It's our hope that as we listen into the following conversation, we'll be encouraged by the everyday power of the gospel, be given a deeper love for God's church, and be stirred to see the way the Spirit is at work in the lives of those around us. We're a small podcast hoping to spark a big conversation. So if you get something out of today's episode, please partner with us by sharing the link with a friend or to your social media feed. This is Season 2. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Church Uncharted podcast. Here today with me in person, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because this is uh, my first uh, in-person podcast interview and uh, I'm here today with David Shaw, Dr. David Shaw. How, how are you, David? I'm well. It's an honor. I didn't know it was the first in-person yes. thing for you. There's pandemic, COVID craziness. I didn't know it was the first guy. Yeah, no, that's in right. person. It's an honor. It's um, wow. it's, it's good to be with you. I, I haven't seen you for for a little while, but we've um, yeah. we've we've known each other for for a little bit. Um, you three four years now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Probably. so so much so that I I trust you. Um, wow. I, I trust you enough to have you MC my wedding. I did <laughs> reception. What an honor. Uh, that that was great. You put in some brilliant references about uh, Martin Luther's uh, love for beer and um, and and choice in wives and um, I, wives in in the plural. No, no, <laughs> Just, he only had um, one. Martin Luther only had one wife. Um, yes, but that, that was you, you, wow. Is, more you, coffee, please. You, you did such a brilliant job with with that. But anyhow, oh, anyhow, we're we're getting ahead. Well, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Share about your your story and what, what you're up to now. Sure. Well. Uh, I work at Perth Bible College, where I get to lecture in Old and New Testaments now. It's mostly New Testament stuff, but now I get to do a bit of the Old Testament too. Outside of Perth Bible College, I'm an elder in training at my own local church, Providence. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, We have a good group of guys there. Outside of the ministry context, sort of more homely, uh, married, have a lovely Korean bride, and three young children, ages nine, seven, and six. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you weren't always uh, a Bible college lecturer. No, um, I wasn't. Um, how, how far back do you want me to go? Should uh, I go back to teen years? Ju- ju- jump back a, a little bit. I <laughs> you told me at one point that you used to be a PE teacher. I did. Yeah, I trained my my undergraduate degree was physical and health education. Mm-hmm. So I was a bit of a sports nut. Loved my football. Loved my cricket. Yeah, you were you were um, a decent footballer, weren't, weren't you? you? You yeah, I was all right. Sort of, <laughs> sort of near near enough waffle level uh-huh. training with East Romano Colts, yeah. um, who need all the help they can get right now. Well, East Romano more generally, not necessarily the Colts. But you, you should go back. <laughs> I should go back. I'd get beaten up now. Uh-huh. I, 
every everyone's bigger and taller back in the day when I played. Um, no, I, I enjoyed that. So that was probably up to about early to mid twenties, and then I graduated and I didn't get a job in the city, and I didn't fancy moving to the countryside to teach. I didn't. I didn't fancy really. I, I, I'm a city slicker through and through. I love the city. I love getting away to the countryside. Not particularly keen to live there necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I know Be- Be- Beck's a farm girl. No, uh, I, I share your your same so, sentiment. Uh, yeah. no, no, no offense to her, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm a city guy. So I looked at my options and I thought, well, so some friends of mine had gone to South Korea and taught English, and so basically on a whim. I decided to apply for English teaching jobs in South Korea. Why not? And took the first one I was offered, which was a mistake. Um, turned out all right, but uh, never take the first job you're offered in that kind of context. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was meant to be a one-year adventure, and it became eight and a half years. Yeah. And I did teach English for my first couple of years there. Uh, lived uh, First year, I lived in a city outside of Seoul called Jonju which has the best food in the world, mm. um, hands down, amazing. I, I, I didn't cook all year. Mm. Not, I, no, sorry. I cooked toast <laughs> once and I burned it. Um, but uh, I, I hardly hardly cooked in that first year because the food was so cheap and yep. so good and I was, you know, there wasn't much point in me cooking. Sure. Um, and then second year I moved up to Seoul, uh, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. It's a city on an epic scale. It never sleeps. Um, really enjoyed that. And then after that second year, or during that second year, I suppose I began to have a bit of, I don't know if crisis is the right word, but it became pretty apparent that I was kind of coasting mm. through through life. And earlier in my phys ed, day, phys ed days, I'd sensed a call to a form of ministry. Didn't quite know what that looked like. Yeah. But... It felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder to pursue theological education. Mm. And so I began, while living in Seoul, looking into external programs yeah. back in Australia. Yeah. And um, my pastor at the time uh, basically said, hey, there's there's a Bible college right here in Seoul. They have a program in English. Mm. You've got a degree. Maybe they'll, they'll take you. Maybe you know if you like this church, if you feel God's called you to stay and you need to get an education, maybe that's a legitimate option for you. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. And so having initially gone to South Korea to teach English, Mm. it had become apparent that I was now on a track towards ministry Mm. and that training was going to happen in South Korea, uh, where I had a great and vibrant church community. And I began to work on my master of divinity mm. in Seoul living in a dormitory mm-hmm. in a one like a studio dormitory with another roommate mm-hmm. <laughs> like two beds two desks and a bathroom uh, and that was uh, all we had and that was the next three or four years of my life and that's where I met my wife Becky uh-huh. she was in the same program not in the same different corridor same dormitory yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, just to make that clear and so yeah wait that, hang on, hang on. D- d- different corridor same dormitory yes Okay, gotcha. So there was a girl's wing and a guy's gotcha. wing. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah. Different room. Different room. Uh-huh. Very different. Um, <laughs> very different rooms. And you had a roommate, so you, you know. But, I mean, that took about 18 months for all that to un, un, sure. you know, to unfold. Yeah. Um, so you you guys got married over there? We got married in Seoul, yeah, and then 2008. What, and what, what you did, did you move uh, back over here to Australia? Oh, that didn't happen until... So I left Perth in January 2004. 
and I didn't get back to Perth full time until January 2015. Gee, that's so a big gap year. Was, isn't it? Yeah. it was a big gap year. I was gone for 11 years, uh-huh. left as a single boy, essentially, <laughs> came back as a married man with three kids yeah. and halfway to a PhD. There you go. So in 2012, Becky and I had been married for near, near enough four years. We had our eldest son, Owen, at the time. We had our little girl, Gianna, on the way. Mm. And I was offered a chance to pursue a PhD yep. um, in New Testament studies uh, at the University of Exeter in yes. the UK. So after finishing my MDiv, I actually did pastor. Yes. I was pastoring in Seoul for two and a half years yeah. at an international Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. So I'm an ordained Southern Baptist minister, there you which go. is still a very weird sentence to have to say uh-huh. uh, because I'm an Aussie and I'm an ordained Southern Baptist uh, and I was ordained in Seoul, South Korea <laughs> after studying at a Bible college that was more Presbyterian. Yeah, uh, And so there's quite an ecumenical yeah, feel to right. all of that. Yeah. And, um, but... You know, God has been very kind. And now, and now lecturing at, at an interdenominational Bible college. Exactly, and full circle. Um, you know, you, you, when you pursue, if you pursue a PhD, um, you kind of just chase the jobs wherever they are. Mm. And so there was never any guarantee that I would end up back in Perth. Mm. But, you know, God in his kindness really brought me back, back home full circle, which I would never have predicted in a million years. Great. Um, so there was a lot of providential happenings mm. that that process mm. as that process unfolded it became apparent that God was at work in ways that we yeah. couldn't have foreseen just the way we found yeah. out about the job the way the interviews took place yeah. um, my knowledge of the college and one mm. or two of the people already working here mm. Th- things like that so mm. yeah, God was very kind to us so you've you've uh, you've kind of worked in uh, some non-church environments. You've yeah. pastored in South Korea. Now yeah. you're uh, lecturing here in Western Australia, mm-hmm. um, really a fair bit in the New Testament. You've also lectured um, in Old New yep. uh, Testament in a local mission. And, and today I'd like to talk to you really about, mm. uh, because this podcast is all about the church uh, being equipped um, being empowered to yeah. be on mission in their local communities. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a, a little bit about the New Testament understanding of yeah. mission, local mission, kind of evangelism and, and, and how mm-hmm. the church relates to the world around it. And really, to, to kick off, how, how has your thinking on this topic changed over time in any different settings? Yeah, well, funnily, setting is everything. I think when it comes to mission and I think because of that how we think about mission has to be nuanced in accordance to our setting Mm. I'll give you a really simple example of how that might work in Romans 13 in uh, 1 Peter 2 and I think Revelation uh, have a crack 12 (laughs) going from memory if I were to ask you say what what is the relationship between the church and the state Mm. I would say it depends. Mm. So if you were to look at Romans 13 and that's all you had, you would say it looks pretty 
relatively cozy almost. Yeah. One of the authorities and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, but when you get to First Peter, mm. which is written a little bit after Romans, mm. um, it's not quite as cozy anymore. Yeah. You're still called to one of the authorities, but you, you're beginning to sense tension yeah. between the church and, and, and the state. That's right. In, in reading, Romans, yeah. reading Romans 13 almost brings to mind kind of your um, Europe of 14... 1500 where yeah, where, exactly. where where there are such close ties between the the, the bishops and and, yeah. and the province princes yeah. and to be european was almost to be christian by right. default yeah. yeah even though we know that it didn't look like that yeah exactly um, yeah. to no, right. to the church in, in rome but but then you have other passages that make the that relationship look a whole lot more, more messy more hostile yeah. um re- revelation being the prime example of that. And there are some contexts internationally where the relationship between the church and the state is very sort of revelation, Mm. which is to say there's a lot of tension, conflict, things aren't going great. Places like China, nations uh, within the Middle East and the like, um, Northern Africa. First Peter, I think, is beginning to describe more and more of the West Mm. where there's rising tension. Mm. And we're trying to navigate what life looks like for the church in an environment which is mostly post-Christian, mm. but the shadow of Christendom lingers. Yeah. Um, my pastor, Rory Shiner, um, who's another guy you should interview, by the <laughs> way, on this stuff. He talks about like we're haunted mm. by the, the shadow of Christendom. It's, mm. And... There's a sense in which we, in the West at least, we want the fruit of Christianity without necessarily mm-hmm. the the roots yeah. behind it. And we are running the risk as a culture at large of soaring off the branch mm. that we sit on. Um, I can't think of too many places where things are cozy between the church and the state in the, in the sense of Romans 13. And even mm-hmm. Romans 13, you wouldn't say is entirely cozy. There was always tension between mm. the church and Rome. Um, but all of that to say that part of the challenge of mission is there's no yeah. one size yeah. fits all that you really have to pay attention to your mm. your immediate local context so, if you're the local church. And, so we can't necessarily just revert back to strategies that worked 30 years ago or even strategies that worked in this other place around the world at the moment and, yeah. then, and just or, assume that they come in. Or even five years ago. Yeah, or five years ago. Five years ago seems like forever ago when you think about the impact of things like social media. Uh um, And even in the last six months where the world is living through a pandemic that no one could have foreseen. So the church at large, and it's always always dangerous painting with such a broad Mm. brush, but it, it does feel a little bit like the church. Sometimes the church is 20 years Pine and by the t- in class I've likened it to when you're in primary school when, when you're in school there's that cool group of kids that you want to hang out you look like the kind of guy who would have been one of the cool kids <laughs> yeah right okay. and uh, but the, there's a group nah, of cool I was, kids I was a floater I, yeah, I, floater. <laughs> I was the kid who wanted to hang out with the cool kids because uh, I, I was a migrant to Australia mm. and I was always, and I, the challenge was always how do I find a group of mates yeah. um, and there's always that cool group and if you're outside that cool group, you work really hard to learn the lingo and do what you mm. want to get into that cool group. And then by the time you've figured it out, 
the cool group have moved on to the next thing yeah. and you're still behind. <laughs> yeah. That's oftentimes the church. Mm. <laughs> the church is that kid trying to keep up with all the cool kids. Yeah. And when they finally figure out the language, it's already mm. the time has passed. To give an example of how this works itself out, and, and it's incredible how quickly this has happened. A friend of mine, mentor even, in terms of the way I think about this, who is a pastor at Providence as well, Steve McAlpine, mm-hmm. he had an article that he wrote a few years ago. I think he called it Exile Stage 2, something like that. And what he pointed out was that churches and even Bible colleges, I dare say, we're preparing to we're preparing our students and our members for what he said was mission in Athens. Mm. And what he meant by that, you know, you go to the Bible, you look at mm-hmm. Acts 17, you look at Paul's dialogue in Athens on Mars Hill with the Areopagus, and yeah. there's conversation and there's pushback and then there's handshakes at the end. Thanks, mate. We're interested, yes. we're not interested. It's uh-huh. all very it seems very amicable. And we're we're training people for, for that. Athens is dead. We're, we're <laughs> this not is there. Babylon. Yeah, like, okay. And, and, and so, you know, it, this isn't a, like, if Athens is sort of that verbal com- conversational dialogue, mm. um, Babylon's a cage fight. Right. Is the way he likened it. Um, and we need to be preparing the church, the local church, mm. say in a context like Perth, to be much more resilient mm. in the face of that. And, um, I think you know it's going to be harder for our kids to be Christians, I dare say, mm. than it was for us. Mm. That's what I would say. And so the church has to be clued into yeah. that and not simply thinking, how do I play catch up? Yeah. But what might it look like to, yeah. to maybe even get ahead of the curve and the legwork that's required to do that, the training that's required to do that. Mm. So you're saying that we're not in Athens where we're kind of mm. on equal footing and we're, we're able to yeah. impose an idea and take an idea and then there's nice handshakes. Really, we're, uh, to remind our listeners, we're, rather we're in Babylon in, in, in the same way that Israel was exiled in, in, yeah. in Babylon, that really we're working out what it looks like to mm-hmm. live in the midst of a culture where really we're, we're not on the same page. Yeah, we're, so we're, in, Christen, in, the, in the Christendom framework, the Christians and churches, if you like, we're on the inside of the power structures, mm. right? In Athens, so to speak. But post-Christendom, Christians are not in the cor- in the centers yeah. of power anymore. They've been pushed to the margins, yeah. and so now the church is having to. And, and the, I mean, there's a sense in which this is almost back to normal. Yes, <laughs> um, the Western Church in particular has had the privilege of, I guess you might say, power, influence, and cultural right. authority, particularly in the West. For the better part of 1500 years, mm. ever since Constantine, you could mm. argue it goes back that far. For for those in Europe and for those who live in the legacy of European colonial expansion, mm, mm. places like the US, Canada, Australia, mm-hmm. and, and the like. But now the vast majority of people who they, they might claim some form of Christian faith in the past no longer do, we're post-Christendom. What that means is there's a completely different moral framework yeah. in, in play now in terms of talking to people about Jesus, about the Bible. Um, you cannot assume any That's knowledge right. anymore. Yeah. Whereas 20 years ago, you might have assumed a bit yeah. of knowledge. You, you almost certainly can't anymore. Yeah. Even for me, I've got children in the 
public school system and occasionally there are Easter things or Christmas things. Mm-hmm. And we, Becky and I, we interact with parents who live in the shadow of Christendom and they're, they're haunted by it, but they have no idea how to talk to their kids about That's right. Easter, yeah. Jesus. For them, it's just Easter bunnies and chocolate or it's Santa mm. Claus and presents at Christmas time. Mm. And to even mm. speak of the original you know, in the media it'll be portrayed as the real meaning of Christmas. Mm. Most people don't even have that anymore. That, yeah. Not even that can be assumed. So in that sense, we are kind of haunted by the sh- shadow of Christendom yeah. because there, there are some, there's fragments that trickle through to today. That's but, a good word, but, fragments. But without the shared understanding, without the really any kind of shared literacy or fluency around what the significance of that yeah. is or or even what the foundational root of all that is and, and so today we, we've already said that perhaps at different times in history and in different contexts there's different parts of the bible that speak particularly potently to the the current kind of to the moment to the moment yeah and so you've done your phd work on uh first peter i have oh now you're getting me excited and and I, I know that you you have some particular thoughts on on how First Peter mm. uh, speaks to this current cultural moment I do. That, that we're in today. What what are some of those things that carry through uh, First Peter in terms of how the church is in amongst and on mission to yeah. the unbelievers around us? Yeah, it, it's almost like we scripted this, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you'd ne- listeners would never know, um, but y- you're right and. Uh, I guess, to my mind, 1 Peter is about as timely a letter for the church today as mm. I can think of. There'd be a couple of others up there as well. And I think the strength of 1 Peter is that it's, and what's helpful for us, I think, in our Western context now, is that for Peter, the church is seen, or are seen, the church is a scene, not as power players in the mm. culture at, lar- at large, but as a minority. Yeah as outsiders, as those who are, in essence, exiled. I talk about being weirdos in, in a good way. So for, for Peter's original audience, the best way, to, I think, to understand it is that Peter's audience became outsiders in their home context mm. because they converted to the Christian faith. Okay. And so they were, per- you know, they were not Christians. They were perfectly at home. They would have participated in local folk religions. Uh, they would have perhaps participated in imperial cult religions. Mm. So worship, you know, Caesar, like sacrifices to Caesar as a god, um, among all their other practices. And they were they they were perfectly at home in that context. Mm. And then perhaps Peter, perhaps someone else has come into that community in mm. what is, let's say, ancient Turkey, mm. and they've heard the gospel, and they've had a legitimate conversion experience. Mm. And now, although they, are, although they are still at home, yeah. they've become aliens. Mm. They've become outsiders. They've become mm. weirdos because they've embraced faith in Jesus. Mm. And with without any connection to a strong institutional power of of, of a church, the, the, this mm. is these are kind of grassroots. The, this is grassroots people, level yeah. Christianity, yeah. 
And the, the trick is, it, it wasn't that they added Jesus to what they were already doing. Hmm. It wasn't just welcoming Jesus into their plethora of other gods. Yeah. It was the ref, it was the refutation of all their other gods, hmm. the refutation of Caesar as Lord, so to speak, hmm. and a full embrace of Jesus as Lord. Yeah. And that made them weirdos and outsiders, sometimes even within their own households. So mm. you might have, and Peter's household code deals with it, you might have a slave or a wife or even you know, even a husband, say, yeah. have a conversion. They hear the gospel, they have a conversion experience, and they might be the only Christian in their yeah. household, and they now have to navigate the tension mm. of what it is to be a Christian mm. in a family or in a household where... Mm. Other gods are worshipped, yeah. And Peter's directly tackling that kind of context, and it's yeah. and it's in the community at large, but then also even at the microorganism mm. level of the home. Because so. the idea that comes through First Peter isn't this idea of like strong church, is it? It's a, it's not it's not really like a strong form of Christianity. It's it's a, a almost almost Christianity around them margins it's, yeah uh, yeah they, they're not in the positions of power and influence mm. that's right they are working from the margins mm. and they're having to so you know first peter 1 verse 1 most translations would say peter an apostle of christ to god's elect exiles mm. or perhaps some translations might say to the elect sojourners mm. i prefer the sojourners translation there um, the idea being that the place which was once their permanent home Mm. is now something more temporary yeah that they are elect of god that he has called them out and that now they have a new hope mm. a new eschatological hope that isn't actually in the land of their forefathers as it were it's actually the new heavens and the new earth mm. the kingdom that is to come mm. when christ returns and so there's been if you like a, a transfer of allegiance from an earthly kingdom to a heavenly kingdom. Yes. And now what Peter wants them to do is to be ambassadors of that heavenly kingdom hmm. in the earthly kingdom that was yes. there, that is their sort of home. So to be an ambassador, to be a representative yeah. of um, the other kingdom, the, yeah. the heavenly kingdom, to, to be the, yeah. the, the presence of, of that other king mm. in 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 kind of that that, that what foreign was their kingdom own, well, which which, it, which was home yes. exactly so it's now it's become a foreign kingdom because they've given their allegiance to a new kingdom um, and now it's like we again I, I I think about the church as an embassy mm. in that model so an em, an embassy is on the soil of one kingdom or nation mm. but it represents another and the members of that embassy. They have to go out into that host kingdom and do their very best job in representing mm. their home kingdom. And their allegiance is with that home mm. kingdom, but they still want to love the kingdom yes. that hosts them. So there's back and forth. There's conversation, but sometimes you know the tensions rise a little mm. and sometimes it's difficult. But I like that image because we know that embassies on foreign soil need to really think through quite carefully how they interact with exactly, yeah. the land that they're in absolutely they need to be deliberate about that they need to work out where their where their rights start and stop yeah and yet do their best for the country that they're representing 
Yep. So they represent one country, one country, but they're seeking the benefit of mm. both. Mm. They they want you know so their job isn't to sort of pillage from the host nation. That's right. Yes. But to seek it the way I put it based on First Peter is that it's it's about holistic well being. Mm. So you know I represent my you know I represent. You know, in First Peter, it's a priestly ministry. You represent God to the people mm. in the place that hosts you, um, and then you represent those people to mm. to God as well. Yeah. Um, you, you pray for them. You love them. You seek their very their very best, even if sometimes they might turn around and slap you in the face. Yeah, uh, literally or figuratively speaking. Um, so the idea of mission in First Peter is the church really being amongst as as ambassadors as as priests yes but also understanding that they're amongst them but also they're outsiders mm. you know, they're, um, it's it's that there's a, there's it's that tension, tension yes so and the word that peter uses uh, the way it's translated in the english is resident alien mm. resident alien also An, another paradox yeah so you're both resident mm. in the land and yet alien, not quite of it anymore. Um, and that makes you a little bit weird. And because in First Peter at least, because it's not like they've gone overseas and they're clearly different. It's not like, a, say, someone from Australia going to Africa to be a missionary. Hmm. Um, you know, they still look exactly like the people around them. They look the same. They eat the same. They yeah. dress the same. They speak the same. But there's been a fundamental change of allegiance in mm. terms of their worship practices. Yeah. They've been liberated from idolatry yeah. to worship the living God as presented in Jesus Christ. Mm. And that reality makes them different and mm. makes them outsiders. Um, even though they still, you know, so in the yeah. Australian context, I might, you know, I've become a Christian in the Australian context, but I still talk like an Aussie. Mm-hmm. I still eat meat pies and Vegemite <laughs> and have the occasional beer. Um, I still love the footy. But on Sundays, I gather with a group of people mm. and my primary allegiance is not to the Australian flag mm. or to my employer mm. or to, to whatever it mm. might be. My ultimate allegiance is to... Jesus mm. and I represent mm. him uh, in my workplace in my school place in yes. you know, wherever that yeah. wherever wherever my life might lead me Monday through Saturday I'm fundamentally an ambassador of Jesus a member of an embassy that represents God's kingdom in yeah. Perth or Sydney or New York or Mumbai or you know wherever it might be so we know the work of God's church spans outside of a Sunday morning. And one of the conversations that I've had with a number of people recently, David, is how to merge someone's church life with their non-church life. A lot of people feel yeah. really quite compartmentalized that this is the this is the Christian bit and, and, and this is the the regular Aussie bloke kind of bit. Yeah. Or or the um the and how does First Peter help us? I guess deal with that tension, but but really, how 
how are we encouraged to, in some way, merge the two whilst holding that kind of paradox between so the, the, resident and alien? Yeah, you were talking about there, I, I guess you might say, an integrated life. Mm. So I don't have the thing that I do with my Christian friends and then separately I have the thing that I do with my non-Christian friends, right? Yes. Um, so because, because our Western context is highly individualized, when I mention evangelism... Mm. And I think about Jesus, say, talking about becoming fishers of men. The immediate image that I go to is a guy by himself with a fishing rod and a hook. Yeah. And just one fish at a time. Yeah. Right. But in Jesus' day, that's not how fishing was done. No. Fishers of men was a team activity. You know, fishing was a team activity. Yeah. Peter and Andrew are brothers and they have their own family business fishing and John and James are brothers and their sons of uh, Zebedee and they have their family business and it looks like as far as I can tell in scripture that they you know they kind of work together and they haul in fish together through nets mm. and you can't do it alone and I think it's kind of true of evangelism as well that not to say that you shouldn't have, like share the gospel as you have the opportunity yeah. individually yeah but there's actually more of a there's got to be more teamwork in play mm. um and what that means is that one of my goals in my friendships is that I make deliberate attempts to blur those lines between my Christian and non-Christian yeah. friends more often. And to So if I'm going to have a party, mm. say I'm going to have a dinner party with maybe a dozen guests, I should make every effort to have some of my non-believing friends and my yeah. believing friends together. Yeah. Um, and that introduces them to a network yes of relationships rather than just one person. rather than just one person oh how do you know so and so oh we, we happen to go to church together oh okay and what that begins to do is to introduce those non-believing friends to a wider group of christians hmm. and they see how those christians live perhaps mm. how they act and maybe they start meeting outside of the dinner party that I organized yeah. and and what that does it creates um, oh I forget the author someone's going to kill me so if there's someone listening and they know um, you can ring Matt or email him tell him but um, evangelists it might even be Sam Chan who's written a book about this he's an Aussie based in Sydney mm. talks about plausibility structures okay and so people have plausibility structures uh, naturally they don't think about them they just naturally think about certain things as plausible and implausible and if they begin to see a wide variety of people living a particular way of life that makes sense mm. that begins to have an impact on their plausibility structure right. and what at one you know so believing in Jesus at once at one time might have seemed implausible mm. they might have only known me because I'm a weirdo and I'm not always the best Christian example, yeah. but you know I do my best. But <laughs> then they, I might introduce them to a network of Christian friendships, yeah. and all of a sudden, there's a network of Christian friends mm. of which they're a part. They see the Christian life lived in a variety of ways, yeah. in a variety of contexts, yeah. and all of a sudden, what once seemed implausible through my relationships with a variety mm. of families and friends actually begins to look plausible yeah and that's just through hospitality and mm. opening you know we, we talked about a dinner party there being willing to open up 
our home, to mm. invite people in, even if we sometimes have, say, a messy house. Because one of the defining marks of the postmodern person isn't, it's not that they're focused on what is true, but they're focused on does it work? Mm. And so if if they receive a number of examples of people who, you know, the yeah. the, the Christian life isn't, it's it's not perfect. It's it's not squeaky clean, but we we can say that a life with Jesus works in, in the sense that it depends what you mean by work. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, li- a life with Jesus doesn't mean it get it gets cushy. It doesn't no. mean I have all of God's blessings pour out on my life. No. A, a person might begin to follow Jesus, and life gets significantly more that's right difficult. So we don't want to couch it in you know it doesn't work like that. But there's a sense in which. Being a Christian is decidedly unreasonable mm. and nonsensical. Yes. And yet, I would argue that more than any other worldview, that Christianity makes sense of the world we see around us. Mm. Yes. If that makes sense. So, it, you know, it sounds crazy to say, yeah, I believe in a man, you know, I believe in a Jewish rabbi who died in his early 30s and God miraculously raised him from the dead and my hope is tied up in him and his kingdom and his values and Mm. you're weird yes yep we need to embrace that yes we we can admit that Um, but in the larger framework of the say the biblical narrative and the story it tells about humanity overall Mm. we can say actually creation fall redemption Restoration, that kind of a narrative actually makes sense of our the human world experience. we live in, our human experience. Um, and, and so in that way, the Christian faith becomes plausible, even as I believe in the reality of a resurrected Savior, which at first glance seems totally yeah. implausible. Um, and so there's a paradox at work in that. I think Christians, I'd like to see Christians be a bit bolder about embracing their weirdness yeah. and not being so concerned about trying to be cool, hip, and so-called relevant. Mm. Um, I think that's a big mistake because if you chase relevance, mm. um, that's a treadmill you'll never get off. Mm. Probably um, the the non-Christians around us would probably much rather us be upfront about the the differences. And, be and upfront about the differences, be upfront about the idea that, yeah, actually, we are trying to convert you. Are you trying to convert me? Totally. Uh, And I I say that quite seriously because as soon as as we engage in that conversation, if, for example, someone says, I believe that religious convictions are personal and should be kept to oneself. Mm. As soon as someone says that, if I buy into that and I do keep my personal convictions to Mm. myself in that regard, Mm. that person has successfully evangelized me to their point of view. Yeah. And that's a conversation stopper. They've converted me to that. <laughs> and it is, a, you know, that idea of life and communication is couched in a particular worldview. Yeah. And if I say, you know what, you're right, I'll keep it to myself. Mm. They've won the evangelism battle, so to speak. Mm. I don't like using the term battle, but you get what I mean. So I, I think it's, I, I just, yeah, I, I do want you to believe this. I do think this is a, you know, the Christian faith makes sense of the world we live in. Yeah, I'm not perfect, um, never claimed to be, but God is good. He has mm. humbled me. And if, you know, because I take Jesus seriously, I no longer have to take myself so seriously. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, and I think you would find your life, I think the, the most meaningful life is one that's found in 
Jesus. Hmm. And you can take that or leave it. And I'll love you either way. And if, you know, all the junk in your life were to one day hit the fan, I'll be there to yeah. help you pick up the pieces no matter what. That says a lot to a person. Mm. Um, that, that's pretty ballsy, I think, to be able to do that. Mm. But I think we need to embrace that weirdness. Because you can't be a resident alien, the way Peter describes, if people don't know about you. If people don't know where you stand. You just sort of blend into the background. You kind of just disappear. Which, in fairness, seems to me to be where some of the secular narrative wants Christians to go. And I think we need to be brave enough to, to push back against that, you know, gently mm. and respectfully. But to say, no, no, we, we have something to say. We do have something to contribute. And you might not like it. You might not agree with it. But good grief, I'm going to love you till the day I die, no matter where, whether or not you agree with me, whether or not you think I'm a moron whether or not you think I'm a kook, whether or not you think I'm a prude. Um, you know, you can think I'm weird mm. and I'm okay with that. Um, I think that's a little bit scary and also a little bit exciting to, it actually kind of feels like a coming out now. And I hate using that term and co-opting that term in that way. But if, you know, if, if the media is all you had to go on, you would feel that's where the narrative is going, that it's actually going to be increasingly more difficult to be, to become a Christian. But by way of encouragement, one thing I would say is what the media have to say publicly is not the final word on the matter. Yeah. And if you were to only read the media and see some of the antagonism and the vitriol that is aimed at Christians, you would think that, oh my goodness, like it's, it's wild. Like I ha- I'm not sure I can be public in my faith without significant mm. costs. And, and that may be true. But my and Mark Sayers talks about this. He's yep. an Aussie cultural analyst who does a far better job than me. At go it. look him up. Go look him up. Mark Sayers, disappearing church, reappearing church, and this cultural moment podcast. Yeah. But he talks about an exhausted middle. Yes. And so, what you see on social media and in the media more generally, you see a very loud ten percent on one side of the yeah. spectrum. You see a very loud ten percent on the other side of the spectrum. And there's the exhausted majority. In there's the, the exhausted in the middle. middle in the eighty percent. The eighty percent, give or take, who just want to live their lives mm. quietly, love their neighbours, and just get through. Just kind of like just make ends meet. I think. Yeah. yeah. And though so many of those people are our neighbours on the street mm. that we live on, mm. and so. I think we fall into the trap of feeling the pressure to evangelize the public, this yeah. giant mass of people. Yeah. And it, it almost becomes a, a yeah. kind of a mythical feat that is totally mm. untouchable, yeah. but we, we kind of need to pull it back a little bit and pull it back a bit and just, you know, I'm not called to evangelize the public, which is a faceless mass. Yeah. I'm called to love my neighbor mm. personally. And, I read it this week and I wish I still had it to hand, but the idea was that we, could, we sometimes get so caught up in pursuing the greater good for the whole world mm. that we actually forget Joey Smith next door yeah. who is lonely, might be struggling mm. with cancer, might be going through a divorce or, you know, because I'm so focused on the big thing yeah. that I actually miss the impact that I can have simply by loving one neighbor mm. next door. 
I think um, you have left us with some brilliant insights for us to ponder on for the, the rest of our day. And uh, I'm just standing on the shoulders of much smarter people than myself. Is, is it I'm okay? Really <laughs> is it is it okay though if I uh, put some um, your your contact details in uh, the, the, the show notes that if our listeners uh, if if you've prompted a, a bit of a question in yeah. their mind that they that they can get in touch with, with more you. than happy to um, you can put that in the details for your for your podcast Fantastic. my work email uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I don't do Facebook. Yeah. Um, I can't stand that craziness anymore. <laughs> I'm on Twitter for professional purposes. There you go. Um, but it sometimes stretches into the fun and the weird and wacky. There you go. Dr. David Short, thank you so much for being on the Church Uncharted podcast. Matt, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We're sure today's episode prompted some questions in your mind. So what we've done is we've placed some links in the description of this episode for you to get in touch with either David or you can also find Matt's contact details for any feedback or ideas for future episodes. Thank you for listening to Church Uncharted.